Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try and find the absolute best albums of the 1980s. Here in season two, we examine the work of a different artist or band each episode. This week we're taking a listen to the LA punk band X. And joining me as always is my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you? Hello. How's it going? Going well. You know, uh, many of this, many of these season two episodes can kind of be connected back to a genre we covered in season one, and X certainly wouldn't be out of place in the hardcore punk episode. But uh, I'm glad we're we're doing them now because I think they have a pretty interesting discography. Yeah, and it's actually it's interesting because this is one of those bands, and we've we've talked about a couple of them already, and even in the the hardcore punk episode, and like we were we were talking about a couple of them whose sound really evolved over the course of their career arc or the decade and x is certainly one of those where you listen to their early 80s stuff it's very just straight up uh standard punk music and then by the time you get to the middle of the decade they're kind of playing around with some weird punk country uh hybrid Mm -hmm. and then by the end of the decade they're just kind of uh you can barely tell they started out as a punk band which is really interesting yeah it's true uh, there's also two documentaries that I watched for this episode, uh, both of which are on Amazon Prime as of this recording anyway, and I recommend both of them. The first was The Decline of Western Civilization, which is a documentary about the L.A. punk scene in 1980, which was directed by Penelope Spheris, who would go on to direct Wayne's World, uh, as well as two other follow-up documentaries, and featured not just X, but also Black Flag, uh, pre-Rollins, uh, Circle Jerks, Alice Bag Band, Catholic Discipline, Fear, and The Germs. Uh, Spheris was directing music videos in LA at the time and saw this emerging scene that was pretty much completely different from what the kind of videos she was getting paid to do, and wanted to highlight you know this emerging sound. So how many how many bands were were featured in the documentary? There were six or seven bands. Six or seven. Were, you know there yeah. was an eighth punk band in the LA scene <laughs> who just out of spite and jealousy just dismissed the entire documentary as being a, a sellout mainstream project with a bunch of sellout bands because they felt bad about yeah. not being in it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because there's I'm sure there's dozens. I mean, like all the clubs you see them play in, you know, they enter the back rooms and there's, you know, 50 band names that are graffitied on the oh, walls. Oh, yeah, big time. And they're all... Yeah, so, but if I bet uh, some of these bands, you can tell, like, I mean, some of these definitely lasted for longer than others. I mean, X obviously went out, went on to make albums basically th- for the whole decade. Black Flag obviously stayed around for a long time, even with a different singer. But I mean, a bunch of these, a lot of these bands were just flaming out, you know, so fa- more fast than than they could even book shows for. I think. Right. So I think she probably at least had some kind of prescience as to all right, which ones are the ones who are really worth focusing on. Yeah, that or the fact that she focused on them gave them staying power. It's I don't I don't know what the causal arrow is there. It might be in both directions. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it might depend on the band. I mean, but you can tell even in from watching this that as far as like musicianship and like stage presence go, I think X was was one of the more talented acts in this kind of in this scene. I yeah. would say. Uh, and then there's another documentary that is just about X called X, The Unheard Music, which came out in 1986 and actually chronicled the band from 80 to 85, uh, which was directed by W.T. Morgan. Uh, it was a very cool documentary and was pretty well edited, you know, for having five years worth of footage. It split together real nicely and he had some fun with some of the editing in that uh, there's one kind of talking head about one of the record execs that was, you know, uh, 
unwilling to sign X uh, early on and then goes on to say what his like next his next big band they're about to break was which is of course somebody you've never heard of of course and they cut right to a commercial for the Ford Edsel yeah <laughs> which is like... although why did they why did they call the movie the unheard music because I I saw that and I I looked at the I looked at the film and it's just a whole bunch of heard music like it's all stuff <laughs> off of their existing album so what was the what was the deal with the title well, there's a there's a track on Los Angeles called "The Unheard Music," so I think it was ah, gotcha. Okay. To that. But and probably I was, a, I was a, way overthinking it. <laughs> it's a it's a song from the first album, but then I think there is probably the thing of like, uh, you know, bands of this stature who are always trying to break through and never do. I think you can probably see it as they're they're making the unheard music because it's still not breaking through the mainstream, right. no matter how hard they try. That's my interpretation, anyway. But that's mostly right. I think it's I'll the song title. Yeah, but uh, you know, before all that, the the band had to meet up somehow, and it, it started when uh, John Doe, who was born uh, John Duchesne, was the bass player and vocalist. He put out an ad in the paper looking for band members, and in that very same issue was an ad placed by Billy Zoom, who was born Tyson Kindell, uh, as a guitar player. So right in that same issue, they both found a, a very similarly worded ad and got together. Pretty much that week. Of course, now I've got Rupert uh, Holmes stuck in my head. <laughs> they, these are all. This band has some of the best band names. I mean, our punk rock episode last season had great band names. This is these ones hold right along with them. I think. Uh, you've got John Doe and Billy Zoom, and then John Doe uh, met Exine Cervenka, which is short for Christine, uh, at a poetry workshop, and she they both liked each other's poetry, began dating, and then she joined the band. And then they met their drummer, who was a, working for another band at the time, ended up leaving, whose real name is DJ Bonebreak, <laughs> which is already one of the best drummer names of all time. Nice. Uh, so that they meet up around 77, 78, uh, then form the band X, which, like I said, is all part of this emerging L.A. punk scene. Um, one of the things we talked about in the last season during that punk rock episode was like the zines that emerged. Uh, which was some of the only ways a lot of these bands got any coverage, basically fan magazines that were, uh, made, you know, handmade and photocopied and distributed just through people word of mouth essentially. Mm. Uh, there was one in L.A. called Slash, which was featured in the uh, Decline of Western Civilization documentary, who worked as a zine, highlighting all these bands, and then they also ended up making an independent record label to release a lot of this music too, and so that's where the first. Uh, the first recorded music of X that you hear is, is on Slash Records. They would also, they become fairly successful. They would drop the zine and become just a record label and go on to release uh, the Violent Femmes' first four albums too. Nice. So they, they had some longevity to them. Um, Which is to say they made but, it like 10 years or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For an independent record label, they made it longer than a month. So they had great success. Back in my day, it was four weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they also caught the attention of um, former uh, Doors keyboardist and founding member Ray Manzarek, who would champion the band and become their producer for their first record. Uh, they would get in the studio in 1980 and record Los Angeles, their first record, with Manzarek producing, like I said, released on uh, Slash Records. Uh, let's take a little listen to one of the songs before we dig into the album and get a little taste of what X their early sound anyway was all about I'm going to play a little bit of the song Nausea and then we'll come back and talk about the record 
So in, the, in this and all the other tracks on Los Angeles, Manzarek also played the keyboard parts, uh, which kind of is makes for an interesting through line, I think, because this is kind of the only one that features a keyboard this prominently. Yeah. It is interesting though because this is a this is a very uh, this is a very just sort of straight down the middle punk album. So I mean, mm-hmm. Ray Manzarek has such a distinctive keyboard sound when he's with the Doors. I would not in any way be able to tell that this is Ray Manzarek playing the keyboards here. Yeah, I think he fits in surprisingly well with their sound. Like you said, they have a pretty standard punk rock sound, uh, and then. There is like an element of rockabilly that they that they integrate, uh, especially like Zoom's guitar. It has kind of a rockabilly edge, and then the keyboard brings in you know kind of a psychedelic edge to a lot of these songs. That is pretty interesting. I think uh, I mean it's a strong debut for sure. It definitely showcases the band's chemistry. I think you can tell from a first album. You know they've already kind of narrowed down their sound and set themselves apart from mm-hmm. some of their peers. I think, especially um, the dueling vocals between. Exine and John Doe, I think, are notable too. I appreciate the lyrics as well because, I mean, you mentioned you know Exine comes out of the the poetry scene, and you can tell that in a lot of the songs. It's it's a very mm-hmm. it's a very straight down the the line punk album. And my my critique of this album is that it sounds like a really generic punk album to me. I don't necessarily distinguish between mm-hmm. this and any other kind of. Uh, standard punk album that comes out of the same scene at the same time, but the lyrics are really interesting on a couple of these songs, and they're they're very not punk lyrics. They're very much poetry set to punk music, which I think is the the one thing for me that makes some of these songs stand out uh, more than others. Yeah, the, yeah, a lot of the songs are very evocative and not just the straight up, uh, you know teenage angst that a lot of the other punk bands have right yeah Uh, but it does have to be said however in regards to the title track lyrics uh los angeles which is a song basically about white flight right Mm -hmm. essentially the act of this straight white christian woman leaving the city for the suburbs to self-segregate from those different from her and and describing this person they drop the n-word yeah pretty early on they drop they drop a few words pretty early on in this song uh, yeah they are, but I mean, the the you know they're painting this picture that they want to. I think generally, to me, it's best practice for a white person to refrain from saying the N word at all costs. I think uh, that held true probably forty years ago, just as it does today. Uh, but there was one writer that uh, I read something about, uh, written by Camille Collins, who even wrote a young adult novel about a young black girl who was a punk fan, set in nineteen eighty, mm. called the Exine Chronicles. Uh, who wrote an excellent piece, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, that discusses punk musicians' use of that word uh, in this piece, primarily Patti Smith's use, but Exine's as well, and says uh, the following quote, which I'll read. Uh, Black lovers of punk are no different than any other kind. We love the assault of impolite, upperborious sounds thrashed out and hollered with little regard for the protocols of harmony and catchy lyrics that define pop. But what's a black person to do when their favorite punker drops the N-word in what might otherwise be a totally awesome song and she also says uh theorizes kind of in regards to smith's use i think as a mad scientist of punk she wanted to experiment and poke around with something dangerous and combustible like that nasty yellow ochre color that uh, in the acrylic paint box she wanted to dabble with one of the ugliest words in the english lexicon to see what she might fashion and so i think that speaks to their use of it as well i mean they're it's the punk music in general is meant to be 
poking you in the eye, right? It's supposed to be pushing boundaries to a degree, but I think uh, it's important to consider the baggage that comes along with some of these uh, boundaries as well. Right. I think the, the the use of the word was much more common in just mainstream uh pop culture and in media in 1980 versus today i mean you've got a mm -hmm. there's a very famous john lennon song that i'm thinking of right now yeah. uh among many others right like there's the, mm -hmm. the word gets used in ways in the in the 70s and 80s that would never ever ever get used today like even you think about like Saturday Night Live sketches, uh, most mm -hmm. mostly written yeah. by Richard Pryor. So you know, there's that. But I mean, they still they still air, and you would never have that today. Yeah, totally. And and I mean, you look at like um, Hurricane from Bob Dylan. I mean, that's a similar right, thing right. Where he's, it's about racial prejudice, and he uses that same word. But yeah, uh, you know, it can be. You know, I just want to put that as an asterisk, kind of next to the record. Yeah. You know, it's still something that's that's out there that. You have to that somebody's going to hear, and you know it's not the same necessarily as uh, some of the other lyrics. I think. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, Quentin Tarantino makes movies and drops that word yeah. fifteen times in a minute. The uh, the other interesting, the, the I I have that reaction like. I am I am not black. I am gay, so I have a similar reaction mm -hmm. to the the F word, which also appears in in Los Angeles. Uh, I have that that kind of weird reaction. Uh, nothing to do with X, but whenever I hear uh, "Money for Nothing" by Dire Straits, where mm. uh, Knopfler's taking on a character, and like the use of that word is evocative of who this character is and he's doing it in a way that's that is ultimately very progressive and and uh and, and positive but he's still using the word and it always kind of weirdly wigs me out whenever uh whenever i'm listening to the song it's also super fun whenever the song comes on the radio to see if this is one of those radio stations that's going to bleep it or not because mm -hmm. that's a coin flip which is fascinating yeah I mean, there, there was even a um, a Weezer song from their fourth or fifth album, I think that that the uh, where that had that in it too. And yeah, it was, and was another thing where like it, it, there were two seemingly two versions that you might hear on the radio, yep, depending on yep. who noticed it. But so, yeah, Jewel I mean, had one in her in her first album, which I I owned because you know I was a gay boy in the 90s so i, I had jewel's <laughs> album uh i and listened to it and loved it but there's that one song pieces of you it's like okay i get where you're going with this but you don't you don't have to okay sure all right you're jewel that's yeah. fine i get it you're an ally it's fine you're just you're just being a little <laughs> bit odd about it right now right i think there's you know there's obviously ways to do it without saying it right you can be you can paint the same picture with a different color right yeah but and like, and you know, you're right to bring up like Quentin Tarantino. I mean, those movies are often rife with that word, but mm -hmm. just, and depending on who you ask, takes different. Uh, you know, gives them more or less credit. But I'm glad we're going I off on it, this tangent because I have nothing else to say about this album. Other than, <laughs> like, literally, the only note that I have written down after listening to this album is just the phrase "generic punk" in parentheses. Uh, uh, like, this just sounded so indistinguishable to me so i'm like i'm glad we're talking about this because i got nothing else to say about los angeles <laughs> yeah well it's certainly worth talking about i think yeah but yeah it does also help uh pad out this album a little bit <laughs> <laughs>
But I do want to, you know, we talk about Quentin Tarantino for a second. I think a similar uh, piece of, uh, or a television show I saw recently that still was very much focused on racial discrimination in America uh, that I was happily surprised never uh, used the word uh, is the new season of Watchmen. If you haven't watched that, that's 100% just about race and, and manages to tell the exact same story without the, all these white actors chomping at the bit to say the N-word. Yeah, it can be so, done. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to commend him for that. Uh, anyway, back to uh, X. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, after they're recording their first album, Maxine and Doe uh, would get married uh, in between these records and then team up with Manzarek again to record a second album pretty quickly. Uh, they record Wild Gift shortly after, which has a lot of songs that they were that they had written basically around the same time. So a lot of these songs came out of the same time. You can see performances of both in both of those documentaries, you know, right next to each other. So they they had all these songs and just kind of decided which fit on which album. Uh, this one, oh, they they did also the uh, version I have is a re-release from Warner Brothers uh, that came out in '88. It's a, it's actually one CD that has both Los Angeles and Wild Gift on it, which is nice. And it also drives home just how similar these two sounds are. So let's go ahead and play a song from Wild Gift now, which came out in 1981. Uh, This is uh, Beyond and Back. songs this is a really good one yeah yeah i also love it's it's, yeah go for it uh it's just kind of this out they sort of on this one the song and this album showcase a little bit more of that rockabilly sound than on the first one so it's they picked the ones that are slightly less generic punk i felt like yeah there's definitely an x beat that i've that i picked up on listening to all of these albums in a row and then going back to and listening to it again it's in the same Mm -hmm. manner that there's that bo diddley beat uh there's an x beat Mm -hmm. as well and it's dun 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 and there's so many songs that like take that beat and just build on it and the thing that i think makes this album stand out above los angeles is they a lot of the songs on this album really do a good job highlighting specific instruments where every 
instrument has a little riff or a little move that they make, and it's just a tiny little element of the song, but it stands out, and it's really cool in a way that I don't get from any Los Angeles songs. The opening track, the Once Over Twice, uh, having yeah. listened to Los Angeles, it's like, all right, I'm in for this. I start listening to Wild mm-hmm. Gift, and that the the that immediate first guitar riff with that really cool just the the bass, just two notes of bass in that uh, that's accompanying that guitar riff. There's something about that to kick off the album. It's like, okay, now I'm a now I'm on board with X. I get the I get the musicality. I get where they're coming from with this. And there's a lot of songs like that on this album. Yeah, totally. And I just love the phrase too. He gave me the once over twice. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. Also, also true. Yeah, they're they're gonna get a couple songs later on uh, where they get a little bit too cutesy with their with their wordplay, <laughs> but that one I was totally on board with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great great song. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, yeah, a lot of this one I think is a little bit more. Uh, almost it's a more fun record i think yes the it's a little more fast-paced a little more up and uh it also doesn't have the same psychedelic keys that manzarek added on the first one so it it's kind of makes a more straightforward rock record which is really fun yeah also a lot I of think, also a lot of breakup songs uh or a lot of yeah. unrequited love songs in here as well mm-hmm. i think uh robert Criscow uh described this as a great punk album and a great love album all at the same time and you don't usually get those two things together uh mm-hmm. and that's a hundred percent true like it's it's definitely an album that's just full of uh, I want you to love me, but you don't. What the hell am I thinking? I'm still thinking it anyway. Like it's it's really it's it's deeper than I think Los Angeles is. Yeah, and personally, I deeper. think right. Yeah, yeah, totally. You can tell. Like, you know, you wonder how many poems they that Doe and Exine wrote, you know, in those workshops, and then <laughs> were <laughs> coy about whether they were actually about each other or not right. before they, you know. You can see that kind of relationship in these songs, but to, which you know, not to foreshadow too hard, but it's not going to last forever. Obviously. Well, no, of course, but nothing ever does. <laughs> yeah, uh, but by this point, uh, you know, uh, late '81, they've kind of uh, proven their talent around LA. They've proven their staying power a little bit. They start to branch out, uh, but then, actually, in between recording, shortly after their wedding. Uh, their, Christine's uh, sister was killed in a hit-and-run car accident, mm. and that would color a lot of their songwriting uh, afterwards, uh, which sets up uh, the third album, uh, where they actually, before that, got a contract with Elektra Records, so now they've got a major label deal. They managed to uh, keep Manzarek as their producer still, uh, but now they've taken these songs about her sister Mary and color that onto a lot of the third record under the big black sun uh let's take a little listen to one of those songs that she wrote for her sister this is come back to me from 82's under the big black sun
what do you think of that one there? I, and see, there's a song that that doesn't even sound punk at all. Like you're you're already <laughs> moving away from from all of those initial uh those initial impetuses of of x and they're they're taking their sound in a completely different direction i really like this song i really like this yeah. album um mm-hmm. listening to it multiple times i started to to like the song a little bit less than the first time i heard it but it is still one of the one of the better x songs i think and the the yeah, title like track which immediately follows it under the big black sun that's one that i actually is also about Mary's death and it's also mm-hmm. a very it's a very poetic song the lyrics are very clearly a, a poem and and Exine's obviously got a lot on her mind over and above just uh Mary's death that's a song that grew on me as I listened to it multiple times but there are several really really great songs uh, on this album yeah, I think overall this this one's a huge step forward. I love both the the one we just played and the title track are both fantastic. I think those are like the the climax of the record almost. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a they did a really great job. And and you know in, in interviews and stuff, Exine would say, you know, she wasn't quite ready to deal with you know her sister at the time, and so that's kind of why Wild Gift was still those old sounding songs, even though it happened in between. And then now finally had some time to really deal with it and figure out how to write about it. And, and I think, yeah, every song on this turns out so great. Yeah. Including some of the songs that really have solo. nothing to do or very little to do with, with Xene's six sister. The the, tight, the opening track off of the album is Hungry Wolf, which is, I think, mm-hmm. one of my favorite X songs. Just that, like, pulsing beat. It's fun. And there's there's substantive stuff going on in the lyrics but it's also just such a fun song to kick off the album yeah totally yeah i think this is a great one and all of the um all of the winds and horns and stuff you hear on the record are played by billy zoom whose dad was like an old jazz musician and so that's where his musical background comes from he's a he was a multi-instrumentalist himself like just as a teenager before he even started the band nice so yeah it's pretty cool but uh, yeah, I think this one, this is a great record. And I think it shows just how much they managed to grow in that year, you know, from those early records to now. And it, it sounds great too. I mean, it's Rayman's Eric produced it still, but uh, you can tell they have a much bigger budget this time around too. But, you know, from here on, they continue to tour around North America. Uh, they gain, gain a little steam, but still not still not quite breaking through into the mainstream. So they get right back in the studio again. Man's Eric's still producing. Uh, and in September of 83... They'd release their fourth album, uh, More Fun in the New World. So let's take a listen to that one, too. Uh, I'll go ahead and play the opening track, The New World, and then we will talk about the album. Before, before they vote 
I think, uh, first of all, I love that the first two songs kind of serve as the title tracks. You've got The New World and then We're Having Much More Fun. Uh, you don't see that very yeah, often. Yeah, right. I, I, did, I did appreciate that. This is. But I think this one sounds good too. Yeah, this of all of their albums is the one where you can really see just how many different influences they have. Like they're still punk here. Mm-hmm. They're bringing in country. They're bringing in rockabilly. They're bringing in kind of folk protest music. You heard a little bit there yeah. in that first song, uh, and there's going to be others, others very much like it further on in the album. Like they're bringing in a lot of different influences, uh, and it all blends together very well. Yeah, they've definitely found the way to channel all those various influences that they have obviously had for so long, right? There was a, a tinge of rockabilly and stuff in those early ones, but now they've fully embraced, yeah, the rockabilly, the country, the blues. I, I think this one is kind of the most almost experimental uh, of so far anyway. I think but so, yeah, because as, later, as later they're going to come back to, to yeah. Because later they're going to come back to kind of generic 80s stuff. They start off with generic punk, and then they're kind of branching out and, and experimenting. And this is, yeah, I think you're right. This is about as, this is about as experimental as they're going to get. But it's it's all, it's all just taking different, very recognizable elements and blending them together in a new way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found on this one and on um, under the Big Black Sun, you know, any time they made what to that point was not a stereotypical X song, I got really excited because I think they always did a really great job with it. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I think on this one, I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts is really great. Yeah. What's a, Wait, what's a stereotypical X song for you? I think like Nausea, the first one. Okay, quit. That's, okay, to me, gotcha. that's a stereotypical. Because I think like stereotypical late 80s X is very different from stereotypical early 80s X. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, and to to kind of put the umbrella out now, this this kind of marks the end of the classic X era. For sure. You know, these these first four albums are what is kind of considered the classics. Uh, and then from here on out, they, <laughs> it's not as classic. And then later, they but. went and made Ain't Love Grand. Yeah, well, let's, let's stay in more fun for the new world okay, for a little yeah, longer just to, so we... Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, they, they've gotten more political on some of these songs, mm-hmm. or at least more overtly political. Uh, and then they also like True Love Part 2, the the end track, is something that really could not have worked, but worked fantastic for me. Yeah. I thought it was so fun. And that's a funk song. Like, you're, you're bringing in that yeah. element, too, which uh, hitherto, I don't think there, I don't think there is an X song prior to True Love Part 2, which, by the way, is there a True Love Part 1? There's not, is there? It is. It's the third song. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. See, I'm overthinking it again. Okay, so <laughs> True Love Part, which is completely different from True Love Part One. Like, there's no X yeah. song up to that, which is in any way really inspired by funk. And I don't think there's a song after that either. I think that's the one they did it. They knocked it out, and then it's like, all right, we got that out of our system, and it sounded great. Let's move on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they didn't. Do- they don't dwell on it. They don't drive it into the ground. They're like, this. But this would be fun to do. And then they were right. And then that was it. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, you know, they, uh, oh, they've also, you know, on the first, on LA, they covered a door song, you know, kind of an, an honor of man's Eric, the uh, Soul Kitchen. <laughs> that was their and cost they, they of hiring cover... him as producer. You got to cover <laughs> yeah, one of exactly. my songs. All right, fine. <laughs> Pick one. You have to. <laughs> it's got to be this it. one. Like, ah, oh, we hate that song. You're going to cover <laughs> it or I'm not going to do it for you. Yeah. 
And then, uh, so in this one, they cover uh, an Otis Redding song called Breathless, which uh, anytime I think they do a few covers on all their albums. And I think they always manage to do a good job of bringing that into their, the sound of that album. Yeah. It doesn't, it sounds like it could have actually been one of their songs. It's also interesting that they're, was it their biggest hit of the 80s? Uh, not on any of these albums is the is the cover of Wild Thing that they did, right? That's true. They did have a cover of Wild Thing that was, I think, on a, a movie soundtrack. Oh, Major maybe? League, yeah. Yeah. When Charlie and Sheen the, comes yeah, out so... to close the game and they play Wild Thing and the crowd goes nuts and the <laughs> owner's sitting there like, oh, I hate this effing song. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was a great moment in that movie. Yeah. There is an, uh, on the deluxe version of the album we're not ready to talk about yet there is a uh extended version of that wild thing cover mm-hmm. which uh you know removed of any context is uh not as fun i don't think <laughs> well that's why it wasn't on this album because this album is more fun uh, yeah it's uh, much more fun yeah. yeah but uh so at this point they are still trying to break through uh you know they're still kind of relatively obscure uh, their records are getting wider releases thanks to electra and their sounds becoming more accessible, both you know literally and figuratively. Uh, in '84, they played Europe for the first time, uh, but then I'm not sure whose decision it was. But at this point, they decide to break it off with Manzarek as a producer and begin to think about their new record. Uh, and Exine and John Doe were also splitting up at this time, making uh, what I called a uh, "Rumors If Rumors Was Terrible" record. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yep. And that's, that's, yeah. The aforementioned Accurate. Ain't Love Grand yeah. in 1985. Uh, well, let's play the lead single, Burning House of Love, and then we'll come back to talk about it a little more. So up to this point, like I said, anytime I heard a sound that was not quite like the traditional or the original X, I got excited. Uh, this is where I stopped getting excited. <laughs> Did you get excited the first time when you started listening to the album and they, they started doing something that wasn't uh, that wasn't typically them? You're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be, oh, wait, no, ooh, no. 
Yeah. For about 10 or 15 seconds, yep. I was like, okay, let's see where you go. And then 15, 30 seconds later, I said, oh, okay, I was wrong. See, more fun in the new world is great because it takes all of these these disparate influences and combines them together. You got punk, country, rockabilly, funk with, uh, with true love. You got kind of the protest music. This album takes every generic thing about the 80s and combines it together like it's hair metal and it's that one mm-hmm. blondie song where she raps about fab five freddy uh <laughs> scene sounds exactly like that like several times in this album and then there's one song yeah. that actually has a saxophone solo which is the most 80s thing you can do uh and it <laughs> very true. rarely we- works and it doesn't in this case and yeah not not a fan and it did it did work two albums earlier on uh big black sun i thought yeah but i guess i i guess i only notice the saxophone solo when it's not working like <laughs> yes yeah, you definitely notice a bad sax solo. Yeah. i guess that's the that's the drawback <laughs> bad sax you never yeah. forget you never forget bad sax that's definitely <laughs> true that's, that's a bumper sticker or something right? it has to be <laughs> Or it's what it's a bumper sticker that band geeks put on their saxophone Pro, case. Oh, almost certainly, yeah, yeah. Somewhere, if it's not, then that's the that's our first piece of merch that we're going to sell <laughs> for this podcast. We made it through two yeah, seasons the, almost, and now we're now we're getting to the merch. This is good. <laughs> oh yeah, we finally hit on the one that'll sell. Yeah, but, it's not uh, it's not a picture yeah. of me like with a sour face going, "I hate Sonic Youth." <laughs> you know all the, we should make a button or something of that though <laughs> and i i will say you know this is episode four of the season i i did not include a sonic youth episode thank you honor, so. thank you very much season two we will not go in depth on uh, yeah. sonic youth uh well the season's not over yet maybe i'll <laughs> no, just yeah they did uh for this one you know we mentioned they they got rid of Manzarek for this record and brought in a producer named Michael Wagner who had previously engineered, you know, a bunch of like cheesy hair metal acts like Dawkins, Skid Row, Warrant. So, I mean, that's the sound they wanted because they wanted to finally try and break through. And their wish was sort of granted. I mean, the uh, Burning House of Love would end up being one of their highest charting or, you know, maybe charting period songs. It managed to get to number 27 on the Billboard rock charts in 85 uh, and so as a result, sadly, this is their most successful album as well. But uh, for reference, uh, another 1985 rock chart appearance, uh, Driver 8 peaked at number 22 on the same chart. And in 84, Pretty Persuasion peaked at only 44. So that's the yeah. that's the ballpark that you're in. Okay, that's fair. It's interesting but, to see, like the to to look at the charts and see how high or how low certain songs charted, and just which songs have staying power, just has very mm-hmm. little to do with their chart placement, uh, and I, yeah. and that's true even of of contemporary songs that I think of. Like I was as a teenager in the '90s, I you know went to high school then, and the songs that I remember from that period, the songs that I like remember loving at the time are songs that really didn't actually chart very high but they had staying power and other songs that apparently charted higher i had never heard these songs before in my life i don't remember ever hearing them at the time i don't remember hearing them later like they're just a complete mystery to me uh yeah anyway that's my that's my rant for today 
<laughs> well, it's true. You know, what's, the, the charts are very reflective of what is popular at the time. Right, right. And that's not always indi indicative of what has staying power, like you said. I you feel know? like a lot of these songs so, that don't chart very high, like, were popular at the time. Uh, may maybe I'm wrong, oh, yeah. but I, I don't know. There's got to there's you know it's there's a, there's an art to charts and a and a and a math to it that I just have no idea how it works so yeah for sure uh, there's a great uh, co uh, column series on stereo gum uh, called the number ones mm -hmm. that uh, Tom Brehan writes where he's going through from the beginning of the Billboard charts and listening to every song that was ever number one oh, nice at, which is really fascinating I bet. that's one of my favorites and he just got to like 1980 now so it's it's gonna be fun to see <laughs> what's coming up now. Uh, but yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, some of these songs are like, well, this song's legendary and some's like, you know, like the novelty Star Wars disco song is like one of the ones which hit number one. Of course. Yeah. So it's the charts are crazy. Yeah. It's all over the place. Kind of like this record. It's all over the place. It is a little but if, all over it's the not place, even, yeah. The problem is it's also not even like, uh, the problem is a lot of the songs are just forgettable too. Mm. Like Burning House of Love is probably the only one that I even remember like when I look at the names and one of them is the second song is called love shack. It's not that love. It's shack. not la that it came love shack. Yeah. Before the B 52 song and is disappointingly not related at all. But wait, that, that came out yeah, before that's the, the B 52 song. It did. It was about two years before. the B Oh, song. I totally thought it was the other way around. Okay. So this album. Okay, great. All right. So this album came out and it was disappointing, and the B-52s listened to it, and they were like, oh, this is a disappointing album, but that's a great title. Let's do something different with that. Turn around two years later, made Love Shack, and now gifted that to the world, and we have X to thank for making this album. Yeah. There, there you go. go. So, there, so there's the one good thing about this record, <laughs> is that it possibly inspired the good Love Shack. Yes. <laughs> they should put the sticker of that on all yeah. issues. You never forget Bad Love Shack. <laughs> Although actually you you do very quickly forget Bad Love Shack cuz <laughs> at least you try to. Other than the fact that it exists and that I didn't really like it, I don't even remember how that song goes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The, I remember the chorus and that's about it. Yeah. Uh so at this point uh Billy Zoom decides that this is a good time to check out. Uh he moves out of the band. Uh, they're replaced by a guy named uh, Dave Alvin, who's another from a California rock band called The Blasters. Uh, he would tour for him for a while and eventually also leave uh, to be replaced by a friend of theirs called uh, Tony Gilkison. Uh, Alvin and Gilkison would both contribute guitar parts for the next X album, which is the final of the 80s and the last we will hear on this episode. It's called See How We Are. It's released in 1987. I'll play a little bit of a song that Dave Alvin wrote for the band. Uh, this is 4th of July.
this album is at least a little bit better than uh, Ain't Love Grand, I think. I, I at least don't actively dislike it like I did that one. And I think Fourth uh, of July is, it kind of made me think Springsteen-esque, you know, almost. At least yeah. that's what they're going for, it sounded like. I really yeah, like this think? album. I this is this is whiplash for me. Like it was going downhill, and then it just kind of cratered out with "Ain't Love Grand," and then they came back with "See How We Are." And the 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 B side of the album, not so much, but the A side of the album, I think is, I think it really holds up. I think it's one really good song after the other. I think Fourth of July is the highlight, uh, which is interesting because mm-hmm. it's it's a Dave Alvin song. It's not. It's not the typical songwriters. It clearly doesn't sound like an X song. It's very, very different in a lot of ways, but I think it's one of the best songs they ever did. Yeah, I think it's really fun. And I think, to me, this one doesn't quite reach the heights of the first four. Uh, I, mean, I think there are songs on here that I think that are better than some of the songs on Los Angeles, but mm. I think, uh, in general, the album is still a little uneven for me. But but it's not... I don't dislike it. Like I said, I think it's better than Ain't Love Grand, which is not saying much, obviously. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Fourth of July, I think um, Left and Right is kind of a fun one. The one that starts offside too. Left and Right is good. Uh, uh, In the Time It Takes is one of my favorites. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the first seven songs on this album, I think, are, are pretty legit. And then it kind of drops off after that. But the you take those first seven, I think you've got a, a really good EP. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, because I mean, the end of it really is—it's not even just bad; it's just kind of a little forgettable. It's just, also. yeah, it's like, just kind of there, like, and and that's yeah. fine. But yeah, first seven songs off this album is really good. And I mean, we've talked about great albums, just legendary, universally understood as being great albums. Uh, and we've talked we've talked about this on a couple of occasions with Thriller. Uh, Thriller does not have seven good songs on it. Thriller has maybe five, and it benefits mm-hmm. from there only being like eight or nine songs on the album. But you don't have to have that many great songs in order to be a great album. And I think this one, I think this one is better than its reputation. That's probably true. I, I think it, uh, you know, I think it this and the last one, but probably they both do in different ways they both kind of remind me of don't tell a soul right the, the last replacements record mm-hmm. that we listened to uh which is like their attempt to finally break through they you know they're tweaking their sound a little bit in favor of more commercial airplay and it doesn't always pan out and sometimes you're, it results in disappointing songs but even with like don't tell a soul i like songs on there yeah. still and i think they are still good songs just like on this there are still good songs on here even if it's not quite the classic x sound yeah it's going to be an interesting ranking because you like four albums and I like four albums and we have a lot of overlap, but it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think this will be good. This is a closer Venn diagram probably though than most. I yeah, think probably. There will yeah. be a middle section or at least a more well-defined one. Yeah. I say. It's not, we'll see, it's not we'll one see about circle, songs though, because there are, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty big output and they've got a lot of good songs. So I had, a, I had a difficult time narrowing it down to a top five and I'm still not a hundred percent sure where I stand on this top five. I don't know if we're going to have any overlap on, on our songs, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they, uh, just to finish them out here, they would release a live album in 88, live at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and a f- one final studio album in 93 called Hey Zeus, Zeus the God. Uh, then an unplugged album in 95 before the original lineup would reform in 98 for a reunion tour, which they've now at this point been doing on and off ever since, mm-hmm. uh, even as recently as, as uh, 2019. 
Uh, there is a tour plan for this year with the Violent Femmes to start in April, but we'll see if that nope, gets postponed. That's not happening. Uh, my guess is, <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, the listeners will know by now because this, I think this episode will come out after that. But uh, so maybe you got to see them, maybe you didn't. But my guess is probably not. Pro- yeah, no. The, the the start of the tour is not happening. We'll we'll see how they go in the mm-hmm. middle. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it'll definitely get rescheduled at the very least, yeah. I think. For those of you anthropologists and archaeologists listening to this episode <laughs> years later, we're, we're recording this right in the middle of the everything is closedness of 2020, so. Yes, this is, we're, we're all, we are, we've actually this season been recording separately anyway, so that works out. Right. But uh, we've, yeah, we're all stuck inside in quarantine at the moment. Uh, so yeah, ho- hopefully you're hearing this on the other side of that and not still down in a bunker somewhere but if you are then hey welcome to the bunker yeah exactly we've got, we've got fun a lot of good and games. games for you <laughs> yeah uh did you see also this will be a timely reference a few months from now but did you see uh michael stipe sent out a video of him singing not just it's the end of the world but also underneath the bunker oh i did see that yeah <laughs> yeah i thought that was nice anyway back to x we We keep going off on tangents and then coming back to x i was i didn't know anything at all about x when we started when we started doing this episode so again very much like the replacements i was i was vaguely aware of their existence but didn't know anything at all about them hadn't heard really any of their music i think honestly with x the only song of theirs i'd heard was wild thing just because i'd seen major league (laughs) and that was it so Uh I'm I'm coming into this totally cold. Yeah, they were just one, you know, especially the first two albums I would would show up a lot on lists of, you know, best of the 80s, best of whatever. I think they're in the Rolling Stone, you know, top 500 of all time or whatever. Um and so they were one I always had in the back of my head uh for to dive into at some point and this kind of proved to be the the perfect time to do it. Uh, and you know, I, like I said, I had five that I liked already for that hardcore punk episode. So I kind of shifted and said, well, you know, they have that, this, this season's kind of all about highlighting something that takes up pretty much that whole eighties decade, right? If you can encapsulate a career in a decade, which this band you can, I think it kind of works out perfectly. Yeah. Uh, but let's get into now. We've got our top five song rankings. I know you said you had some trouble too. I, I had trouble. I had like a top 10 or so that I was kind of shuffling around to see which ones were i was going to put in the top five for a while yeah because they do have they have a lot of good songs spread out across kind of the whole career save for one i had a i had a top 16 uh i had to go back and listen to all 16 songs again and just like very slowly okay not this one's good but it doesn't make the top five this one's good but it doesn't make the top five and very very gradually uh, mm-hmm. knocked it down to what I'm pretty sure are my top five. But I think if I did, I think if I think I think if I did it all over again, uh, I think my four and five might be different. My top three are definitely my top three in some order or other. Uh, and then there's a bunch of contenders for fourth and fifth. All right, well, let's hear your top five, starting with five. All right, so starting with honorable mention, actually, because uh, I got a okay. shout out to the title track from Under the Big Black Sun. Um, which mm-hmm. I've mentioned is a, just a really terrific song. Uh, and it's it's so powerful and it's poignant and it's great. And the only reason it doesn't make my top five 
is I think Exine's voice gets a little bit off key in the chorus, and I'm sure she was doing that on purpose, but that was enough for me to be like, okay, I can knock that back to, to number six and just be safe about it. So my top okay. five, uh, my first one is actually off of See How We Are uh, in the time it takes. Um, okay. Fourth one is one from More Fun in the New World that we didn't mention, I See Red. Uh, okay, that's a good one. Number three, and these are definitely my top three. Number three is the Once Over Twice off of Wild Gift. Uh, nice. Number two is Fourth of July, so another song from See How We Are. Uh, and then my number one is the opening track from Under the Big Black Sun, which is Hungry Wolf. Yeah, those are good picks. And they, for better or worse, do not overlap at all. Nice. my top five. Yeah, I, <laughs> I kind of assumed, I thought we might have one overlap, but I wasn't sure. Well, uh, my number five, I go with um, Beyond and Back from Wild Gift. That was, like that that's definitely in my top, uh, I think that's my number seven. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, number four, I have uh, Come Back to Me from Big Black Sun. Mm, that's a good one. I like that one a lot. Uh, number three, I have the last song from Los Angeles, The World's a Mess, It's In My Kiss. That w- that was my favorite from that record and the one that I ended up going back to the most. Okay. that's where they have the most fun with that with their classic punk sound yeah at least in my ears uh and then number two i have uh, i must not think bad thoughts from more fun i wanted to like one, that one more than i did 
I listened to it several yeah. times and I'm like, ah, oh, this is one of their this is one of their best. I know this and I just couldn't quite get into <laughs> it, but I, I get where you're coming from with it. Yeah, I, I, every time I heard it, I ended up liking it a little bit more each time. So I think it it, it was on the top 10 for a while and just kind of kept Gradually moved bit. up, yeah, okay. Yeah, and then number one, I have your honorable, honorable mention, Under the Big Black Sun. That's my number That's one song. That's a great song. It's a really great song. Yeah. Especially right after Come Back to Me. Yes. Like having that slow ballad into like just this powerful driving punk song. Yeah. This is one of, that was one of those songs that really made me appreciate the poetry of Exene's lyrics. Because a lot of times you listen to a mm-hmm. song and you really like it. And then you look up the lyrics and you listen to the song while reading the lyrics. And yeah. the lyrics are dumb and it makes you like the song less. In this particular case reading the lyrics while hearing the song made me appreciate the song more because it's powerful poetry and it's very personal and it's poignant and it's great and it's also a fantastic song as well yeah definitely this this was a band in general where i spent a little more time than usual like just sitting and listening and reading at the same time yeah uh, you know i was thankful to have the lyrics and a lot of these liner notes to sit back and read because it did it it does some songs you do hear and then you listen you read the lyrics and you're like oh maybe not but then these these really did have some of the opposite effect a lot of times yeah so how about albums uh, well which one's your which what is your number one x album uh, my number one is actually see how we are um Okay. Wild Gift is a close second. Under the Big Black Sun is a close third. But you mentioned See How We Are as being kind of uh, hit or miss for you. Uh, I mm-hmm. felt that way about Under the Big Black Sun. And it that is what kind of knocks it down a little bit. Wild Gift is a great straight-down-the-line punk album. But to me, it's still kind of a straight-down-the-line punk album. So... Uh, in spite of in spite of the fact that those albums have a better reputation for me, see how we are goes goes up to the top, and I can just forget about the last four songs on that album and be okay. <laughs> nice, yeah. Some you know sometimes the first half of an album is good enough that it carries the rest. Yeah, know, like we mentioned, uh, my top 
I went with uh, More Fun in the New World. Okay. Big Black Sun being a very close second. Yeah. I think the uh, More Fun in the New World was just one where start to finish, I was just, I had, I mean, no pun intended, but I just had the most fun <laughs> listening to it. Yeah. I think th- they they go on so many different tangents of their own that all kind of come back to the same theme, I think. And I don't know, it was all, I th- even though two of my top five were from Black Sun, I think I like all of the album tracks from more fun just slightly more than the big black Sun yeah ones. that's that's fair but but I, I think all four are pretty the first four are pretty classic and i think uh I really i mean ain't love grants the only skip the skippable album, i, I agreed with that but yeah i think you can safely not get that and not miss miss, miss anything yeah you'll, you'll hear see how you are and think oh that they you could still get the same effect of them trying to improve and become more commercial but with making a good album instead yes exactly so that, that about wraps up our discussion of the L.A. punk band X. Uh, next time, three weeks from now, we will be discussing six albums from the career of the great Luther Vandross. So we'll be shifting gears a little bit here. Nice. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you to X for the great music. Thank you to Penelope Spheris and W.T. Morgan for the great documentaries. And thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. So until next time, don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. I'll see you next time. All right, hold on, hold on. Stop the music. Wait right there. Aaron, while we were recording this episode, X just released a new album. They did? Why, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Definitely while we were recording it and not <laughs> like two months ago when we recorded the rest of it. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this is breaking news. We got to stop and listen to this and then I guess we'll come back and give our thoughts. Uh, let me go ahead and play. I'm going to... Jeez, I mean, I haven't heard it yet. I'll just look at the song titles here. Let's play Angel <laughs> on the Road, and then we'll come back and talk to the talk about the album. All right, sounds good. So, I mean, right out of the gate, I think that sounds like some some classic, like, poetic storytelling lyrics from X. It sounds like X. I mean, it sounds like you could have pulled this right out of the 80s and it would fit right in. What do you think? Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking, too. I'm when, um, having, having listened to the album, you know, a little bit, um, there are so many mm-hmm. examples of bands that are definitely way past their heyday who are still together, they're still out there, they're touring, they're playing shows to big crowds and they're doing great, and they continue to just release new albums with new material, and that's super great for them, but for the most part, like, 
there's there's definitely there's definitely a peak period for every band and once you get 20 or 30 years past that peak period you're probably not going to be releasing any new music that's going to be anything close to what you did during that peak um i listened to this album Mm -hmm. and like the the very best x songs are still you know better than anything that i'm i'm hearing on this album but it's not too far removed from how good they were at their peak in the in the 80s they haven't really lost any steps at all which i I think is really impressive yeah i mean yeah it's their first studio album in 27 years and the first one with billy zoom in the lineup in 35 years so i mean for them to sound this cohesive still and sound like it's you know it could have been lifted straight from that prime era is pretty impressive yeah and it, you know it's uh it's like what just under 30 minutes long so i mean it's pretty short but that's a punk record for you <laughs> and so exactly it's I, I think it's a lot of fun oh it's it's definitely a lot of fun and and like some of the some of the best x songs that i've heard are on this album uh it it opens with it opens mm-hmm. with free right is that the that's the opening song uh, I think uh, Alphabet Land is the. the oh Al- first no, song, you're right. right. Alphabet Land is the opening song. Uh, free comes free comes pretty early on, I think though, and it's a really really good song. Like it's up there among the the better ones of of theirs that I've heard. So again, haven't haven't lost a whole lot if they've lost anything at all. Yeah, and uh, so you've got also like Delta eighty eight Nightmare. I know there was like demo versions of that that actually were floating around during mm-hmm. like the. Uh, Los Angeles Wild Gift era. Uh, you've got a new version of Cyrano de Berger's back, Cyrano, which was right. on um, See How We Are. Uh, and so it is, it's funny because there are little bits of actual songs from back then mixed in with ones that I guess they've written since then. And it, and it all is pretty cohesive. Yeah. It, it ends, it ends on an interesting note with, uh, with another just, a poem set to music which i wasn't yeah i wasn't as big a fan of that but you know the 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 songs i thought were good yeah yeah it has like a, a spoken word uh, the all the time in the world the last song on there is like a spoken word set to music and which yeah it's probably my least favorite but at the same time i think it still fits as a closing track you know yeah, and it definitely—I mean, it's—it's it's a nice kind of cohesion with what the band has always been, like very, like that—that that mix of of punk and poetry, uh, and you definitely get that on this album just mm-hmm. as much as you got it on on anything from the the early to mid '80s. So I think it's cool. Yeah, so I think uh, you know a rare comeback record that uh, is pretty satisfying. So good on that. Take that, that Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's cert- I certainly would think it sounds more vital than anything the Rolling Stones have made in the last 30 years, probably. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I might go further and say 40 years. Like, what what have the Stones done <laughs> yeah, since maybe. Start Me Up? Like, Start Me Up is a great song, but that was 1980. Like, what have the Stones done mm-hmm. since 1980? that is really going to be remembered 20 years from now. Like they put out so many albums and so much great music, but all of their great stuff is definitely like in that peak period. Uh, I think if you put together the the very best X songs, um, there might be some material from this album on it. And I think that's, and and again, that's, that doesn't, that sounds like it's damning with faint praise, but I I think it's, I think it's really impressive. (laughs) Right. Well, maybe that's the secret. Maybe then, you know, you can keep touring, you can stay together somewhat, but, you know, 
wait until you actually have 11 songs that are good. If that takes 35 years, I was going to say, sure. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, because, you know, the Stones have put out hundreds of songs in the last 30 years, whereas X may well have written hundreds of songs, but, like, these are the good ones, right? <laughs> and not even all new. Like, yeah. there's a there's a cover of Cyrano, and, yeah, so they're, they're recording mm-hmm. the stuff that's worth recording. I like it. Well, good on them. It's also the first time, apparently, that uh, all four of them are credited on the songwriting. Uh, so they're... Maybe that'll help uh, ease some tension that way, too. Maybe they'll stay together a little longer again. Maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, time will tell. Well, well, that was a fun surprise. Thank you, X. Uh, thank you, everyone, again, for listening. Uh, keep, you know, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Andy Hears It. Uh, we have a Facebook page now, facebook.com slash Andy Hears It. Uh, check out the show notes for this episode and every episode at actin.wordpress.com, actn.wordpress.com. I'm going to put up a full review of Alphabet Land on there this week. You can check that out. Uh, until then, we'll see you in three weeks for our uh, Luther Vandross episode. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you.